Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. start this morning uh, actually talking about um, competing desires, conflicting desires that exist inside of us. I, I would argue that one of the most commonplace and frustrating realities shared by all humans is the experience of having within you two competing and conflicting desires uh, in our hearts simultaneously. Uh, for instance, you might feel a desire to grow in some specific area, but at the very same time, we simultaneously feel a deep desire to stay comfortable. And so we might want to grow, but we also don't want to do the work or to sacrifice in the necessary ways in order to actually do so. And so we have this conflicting desire in our hearts. And the truth is, we have conflicting desires on a number of different fronts. I was trying to think through uh, an example of one in my own life that kind of exists in me regularly, and, and one of them is actually with certain types of reading. I have this like real desire to read what I know are, are classic great books, like The Great Gatsby, or A Tale of Two Cities, or Pride and Prejudice. And so I, I have within me this desire to read these books. I want to read those books. I want to love those books. I want to be formed by those books. The problem is I really like reading young adult fiction. And so I'm like a real big fan of Harry Potter and The Hunger Games and other things written to primarily 13-year-old girls. <laughs> and, uh, and the truth is they're just so much easier to read. And so I have this conflicting desire inside me. I want to read these books that I know are good and that I know are important, but I also want to read what is easiest and most naturally enjoyable. And so that would be an example in my life of a conflicting desire. Now here's the thing. Conflicting desires are commonplace in the Christian life. And I don't think that there's a biblical author who captures it more succinctly than the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.15. When he writes of his own real-time conflicting desire, he says, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. He's describing the conflicting desires that live within us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have within you two things simultaneously. You have the desire to honor and to obey God as a result of the new life that you have been given by grace. But you also have within you this indwelling desire to be your own God of sorts and to do your own thing and to do what you want. And those are two conflicting desires. And so what Peter does is he writes this letter with a deep understanding of these conflicting desires that reside within us. And one of those conflicts that Peter is going to write to in these next verses is a very specific tendency that we all have. I think especially that we feel uniquely right now. And it's the tendency to practice our freedom in Christ in a way that causes our conduct in this world to actually tarnish the reputation of Jesus. There is a way to conduct yourself 
and to practice what we might describe as freedom in a way that tarnishes the very reputation of Jesus. And so this morning, Peter is going to press into this tendency in the context of earthly authority, specifically government and political authority. And so uh, Peter summarizes his intent for these verses with this very important command in verse 13. Just listen to this. Peter says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. And, and sometimes, like, like, we care about the Bible a lot at our church, and, uh, and we actually preach the Bible. We don't just footnote it and reference it. Like, we care about the words. And so sometimes we, we read, and we're like, well, what does that mean in the Greek? And so this is one of those times where you're reading, and you're like, I wonder what every means in the Greek. And it turns out it means every, okay? <laughs> so submit to every human authority because of the Lord. And so if I'm going to summarize Peter's big idea in these verses, here's how I would do so. Uh, submitting to authority is surrendering to God. That's what he's going to say in a sentence. Submitting to authority is surrendering to God. Is the fast and the furious being shot outside? I mean, there's only like nine of those. I guess we could have a tenth one. <laughs> Gee whiz. See... When it comes to authority, we often possess conflicting desires. Because on the one hand, as followers of Jesus, we want to honor and obey God. But on the other hand, we also want to live free from authority, specifically the authority of others, especially with those authorities that are imperfect, which is every earthly authority. And so when this happens, we have a challenge. Anytime there is a conflicting desire inside of us, that we have to choose between, it demands deciding what we want most. So when you have within you two conflicting desires, when you're faced with two competing things that you desire simultaneously that, that are not compatible, you have to make a decision. And you will always make that decision based on what you desire most. And so to that end, I want to ask you a question here at the start that we'll come back to at the end that I think many of us as Christians are really struggling with in this cultural moment we find ourselves in. And that question is this, what is most important to you, your freedom or Christ's reputation? What is most important to you, your freedom or Christ's reputation? And I would say that neither of those two things, those desires is bad. It's good to want to be free. And it's good to want Christ's reputation to be honored. The problem is sometimes those two things can conflict. And so when that happens, what do you desire most? Your freedom or Christ's reputation? And so with that question front of mind, I want to wade into these verses together. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to pick back up in verse 13. I want to call this message surrendering to God by submitting to authority. Surrendering to God by submitting to authority. Let me read these verses over you, and then um, I'm going to make some observations about them, all right? Starting in verse 13, Peter writes this. He says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. And then I love these four commands. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, and honor the emperor. 
All right, so what I want to do in the few minutes that we have together is I want to make six brief observations about authority, freedom, and love, okay? Six brief observations from these verses about authority, freedom, and love. The first is this. Justice is the goal of healthy governmental authority. Justice is the goal of healthy governmental authority. Look again at verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. So Peter starts with this command to submit to all human authority, and then he specifically has in mind governmental authority. We know this because of his references to the emperor and then also to these governors. And so this is one of about five places in the New Testament where we receive some level of instruction regarding our relationship to uh, governmental and political authority. A couple of other places that sound very similar to Peter would be uh, Paul in Romans 13.1 when he writes, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. And then again in Titus chapter 3 verse 1, he tells Titus, a young pastor, to remind his church the same thing, to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, and to be ready for every good work. And so this is where we take our big idea from. The consistent message that we find in the New Testament is that submitting to authority is surrendering to God. And in addition to that, Peter also provides us some insight into the goal of healthy governmental systems and authorities. He says that that Christians should submit to every human authority because of the Lord. And then he says, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out, and notice this, to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do good. So in the ideal situation, any government is meant to preserve justice. A healthy government is structured in a way that seeks the flourishing of the people who comprise it. And even understanding that presents us with an almost immediate challenge. Because what are we supposed to do when we run up against unjust issues in the government? What do we do with systemic issues of racism? What do we do with systemic issues of inequality due to gender? And the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that those questions fall outside of what Peter writes about here. He doesn't speak to that. And so, uh, but in addition to that, we can uh, rest assured that we are blessed to live in a country where, at least to some degree, we have the ability to hold our government accountable when it fails to preserve justice and functions beneath its intended and legal obligation. And furthermore, anytime there is a conflict between what any government says and what God says, we always obey God. But justice is the goal of healthy governmental authority. All right, here's my second observation. Christians silence criticism through appropriate compliance. Christians silence criticism through appropriate compliance. I love this point because I think we are struggling on this front. Notice that Peter says, For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So, just so we understand what Peter's writing to and what his readers were up against. In Roman culture, the emperor was worshipped on par with all of the other gods that the people worshipped. And so because Christians refused to worship anyone other than Jesus, and due to the, the frequent references to Christ as king and participation in Christ's kingdom, Christians were also often accused of treason against the emperor. 
Furthermore, when Christians spoke of the communion elements, the blood, or I'm sorry, the bread and the wine as the, the body and the blood of Christ, they were often accused of cannibalism. And so Peter's counsel here is that they and we would live in a good way that would dismantle the validity of any evil claims like this against us. And so while we live in a country that obviously has an entirely different governmental system, the principle is the same for us today. But the problem is many Christians and many churches seem bent right now on ignoring the heart of this command and instead standing in defiance of governmental authority wherever they deem fit. And I would submit to you that in light of these verses, that's not courageous fidelity to God. It is foolishly defying him and asking for trouble. And so I want you to imagine that you were out on a hike, okay? And I want you to imagine that you happened upon a sleeping bear. The prudent decision in that moment is that you would quietly and, and, and carefully sneak away without disturbing the bear, correct? What you should not do is walk up, kick the bear in the face, and then cry about how cruel the bear is when it proceeds to wake up and maul you. Because you kicked it, and so you asked for the attack. And this is what some Christians and some churches have done as we have walked through this season of COVID. They claim that the government is persecuting the church by keeping us from gathering to worship. And so as a result, they defy government orders, and then they have further problems on their hands, all while continuing to raise these cries of persecution. But here are the facts. Our government has never restricted us as Christians from gathering to worship. Our government has restricted the size of public gatherings. That's not the same thing. That is not persecution. It is a violation of preference, and it is important that we are able to recognize the difference. Because the louder we raise these cries of persecution, the more insulting and hurtful we are to other Christians throughout history and other Christians in the world who are actually being persecuted. And that's an important distinction that we have to be able to think through. Admittedly, the government restrictions have been confusing. Amen? And they have been inconsistent. And sometimes they have even been arbitrary. And we are not being persecuted. And so rather than look for every opportunity to rebel, we should look for every opportunity to comply that does not directly conflict with the way of Jesus. And so Christians should be fluid and flexible. We should be agile and endlessly creative in how we follow Christ together. What we shouldn't do is needlessly seek to kick the bear and cry when it bites us. In fact, I was reading this week, there is a letter that we have from the first century where one of these governors was writing to the emperor and he was talking about how he was working to control the Christian community that was underneath his care. And he, we get this interesting insight into how the first church functioned or the early church functioned in the first century. And so he talks about how early Christians would get up very early on Sunday morning and they would pray and they would sing hymns. That was their first rhythm. The second was they would then meet in homes for meals. And in order to control Christian community, this governor had stepped in and had squashed the meal thing. So there was no more community in homes like that. And guess what the early church did? They did not rise up in defiance. 
because it, their, the way they were functioning in that meal, they did not believe was a biblically mandated, this has to happen in order for us to be faithful to Christ. They complied with a stupid restriction that was put upon them. Do you know why? Because they cared about the reputation of Christ more than their freedom. And we have to do the same. Christians silence criticism through appropriate compliance. How are we feeling? <laughs> I'm only two in. Settle in, suckers. <laughs> Number three. <laughs> Number three. <laughs> Christian freedom is not about escaping service, but shifting masters. Christian freedom is not about escaping service, but shifting masters. Notice that Peter goes on to write, for it is God's will, oh no, I read that already, 16, submit as free people, which is a very interesting sentence, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. So Peter here is speaking into the possibility that Christians would justify all rebellion under the premise of being free in Christ. So perhaps there were Christians in their context who were saying, you know what, Christ has set me free, so I'm no longer subject to the emperor. Or, or, or I, because of my freedom in Christ, I can do whatever I want, and what the government has to say has no authority over me. Peter would call that using freedom as a cover-up for evil. Even Jesus in Mark 14, 17 said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so listen, rebelling against authority is contrary to the way of Jesus. That's true of you when you were a child rising up over your parents. That's true when we rise up over law enforcement or laws that have been put in our place. It is contrary to the way of Jesus to rebel against authority unless... The authority is in direct conflict with the way of Jesus. And so we cannot forget that as followers of Jesus, we are not just saved from something, we are also saved to something, namely service to God. And so I want you to think about it like this. When I was in high school and college, uh, I played football, and the way that I ate and the way that I exercised was driven by my participation in that sport. And so I, the only reason I worked out wasn't like a because I just liked it, it was for the sport. And so when I was done playing, it had been about a decade of that, and I was fried. So I stopped working out because I was free from the sport, and then I started to eat like a crazy person. And I was young, I stayed up super late at the time now, I went to bed literally at 8.45 last night. So this was a very different time in my life, and I felt so good about it. I laid down in bed going, a bunch of you guys are out doing fun stuff, and I'm in bed, and I'm winning. That's the, I'm turning 40 on Friday. I've full-blown settled into it. Like, this is just who I am now. But I, but I used to stay up super late. And so almost every single day, my friends and I would go to Dunkin' Donuts. At, do we have those here? Do we even have that here? All right. So we went to Dunkin' Donuts, 2 a.m., and every single night I would slam like a large coffee with so much cream and sugar in it, it was barely coffee, and two apple fritters. Every, yeah, mmm is right. Mmm is right. <laughs> The only other constant in my diet was an, this growing variety of pizza. And so I was living on apple fritters and Dunkin' Donuts coffee and pizza. And, 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 and I got up to about 240 pounds. And so for the sake of context, that's like 40 whole pounds more than where I am right now. 
And what happened in that was that I used my freedom from the sport as an excuse to stop stewarding my health. And I suffered because of it. And this is in the same vein as Peter's command here. Just because followers of Jesus are no longer slaves to sin, and just because we are no longer to blindly follow the world's value system, does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We have been saved to serve Christ. And so we are subject to him, and he has called us to submit to every earthly authority. And so Christian freedom isn't about escaping service. It's just about shifting our master. Number four, uh, everyone is deserving of honor, even imperfect leaders. Everyone is deserving of honor, even imperfect leaders. In this last verse, notice two times we see this word honor. Uh, Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. So this word honor appears two times. It's a verb meaning to show respect or to show esteem. And so Peter points to both a general and a specific recipient of this honor in their lives and in ours. So first he says honor everyone, and then he ends with honor the emperor. And so this command is actually rooted in the biblical conviction regarding human nature, meaning that humans are created in the image of God. And as a result of that, All human life, from the womb to the tomb, as they say, all human life holds inherent dignity and value and should be shown honor as a result. And I believe that this is why, honestly, just to kind of bring this into real-time things that we're in the midst of right now, I believe this is why the world had the reaction it did to the murder of George Floyd. It's not just because it was a gross violation of excessive force to hold an already subdued man under one's knee for eight minutes despite cries that he could not breathe. It was also a disgusting display of devaluing human life created in the image of God. And so it was a failure on many fronts. But at its core, it was a failure to show the honor that is due to every single human being. And this longing that we have for appropriate honor is at the heart of so much of the racial and unrest and inequality in our country right now. It's also why it matters that we protect unborn life. And so it is about all of those things, but it's not, it's not isolated to just those. The truth is our failure to honor everyone makes its way into countless conversations that we all have every day. Every time that we are disrespectful to one another, so every time we, are, we speak disrespectful words or we speak in a disrespectful tone toward anyone, then we are guilty of dishonor. And I think that this is something that we have to be so careful of, especially as American Christians, because we live with the governmental gift of free speech. Because of free speech, we often feel empowered to speak disrespectfully of people that we disagree with, and especially right now, we feel empowered to speak disrespectfully of people in public office because we have freedom of speech. I was driving down this frontage road just this morning coming here to the ministry center, and there's a private school just down the street, and they had this giant billboard out front that says, freedom of speech is more important than feelings. And biblically, I completely disagree with that. But that is an extremely deeply ingrained American sentiment. 
And so what I would say is, if you are a Christian, just because the Constitution allows something does not mean Christ does. And so even when the authority in our lives makes it very difficult, which it often does, amen? And, and, and even when our leadership does not act or people in our lives do not act in an honorable way, we should still strive to honor them in our speech because everyone is deserving of honor, even imperfect leaders. Number five, you're almost there. <laughs> Number five, Love demands forfeiting our rights for the good of our church family. Love demands forfeiting our rights for the good of our church family. In that verse 17, Peter says, love the brothers and sisters. So this, these brothers and sisters are those Christians who comprise the local church. This isn't about biological brothers and sisters. It isn't necessarily about people living in the surrounding culture or community. It is specific to those who follow Jesus together. So it's literally a command to love those who are part of your church. So to us, Peter would say, love those who call Ridgeline home. And so because of the simplicity of this command, it's so important that we understand what this word love actually means here. And, and it doesn't actually mean that we have to feel warm and gushy toward everyone that we go to church with. Thank God. I wasn't looking in any particular direction when I said that, <laughs> if anyone felt slighted. It also doesn't really mean that we have to like and enjoy every single person who's part of our church. The Greek word that we translate as love literally means this. Listen to this definition. It is affection characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges on behalf of another. Listen to that again. It's an affection characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges on behalf of another. And there is no deeper display of this type of love than the cross. As the eternally existent, entirely perfect God of the universe, Jesus was not obligated to give his life for ours. Jesus had no sin of his own to atone for. In fact, Jesus deserved the rights and privileges of God because he is God. So he didn't deserve to be tempted. He didn't deserve to be hungry, to be tired, or to live in harm's way. He didn't deserve to suffer and die. Yet, as a display of his deep love, he stepped off his throne that was rightfully his. He took on flesh. He stepped into human history, and he suffered and died for you and for me. And that is the love that should mark our church. And so just to be super practical and to see how many politicized landmines I can step on in one sermon, <laughs> do you know why we wear masks? It's not just to protect ourselves. It's out of love for others. And I continue to hear so many Christians say that they either will not or should not have to wear a mask because it is a violation of their freedom. And so I don't want to wade into the validity of that. I just want you to understand that our freedom, our rights, and our privileges are not the highest value as disciples of Jesus. They're just not. And so when we make claims like that, we sound very American, but not very Christian. And that is a problem. And we should be so thankful that Jesus did not think like that. 
because his opposite thinking is what drove his decision to die for us. And so even if you think masks are unnecessary personally, and even if you really genuinely believe it's a violation of your freedom, I would hope that you would let love drive your willingness to wear one. And we won't let you come to church unless you do. <laughs> love demands, <laughs> for what that's worth, let factor that into the equation. There are some churches where I don't think you can go with a mask, so I guess go there. Love demands forfeiting our rights for the good of our church family. And then finally is this. Christians honor everyone, but we only fear God. Christians honor everyone, but we only fear God. In verse 17, Peter says, fear God. Now these words, fear and honor, are certainly similar, but they are not synonyms. Because honor has to do with the way that we behave. We are to act and we are to speak in a way that demonstrates respect toward others. While this word fear uh, certainly will inform our behavior, it actually has more to do with something that we feel. It is a feeling of deep awe or deep reverence. And so uh, I've always really struggled with how to define this word. I think it's very difficult to define. I think it can only be imperfectly described. But here's the closest thing I can think to compare it to. It's similar to what you feel when you get to meet a hero or someone that you really admire and look up to. If you've ever had an experience like that, where you got to meet someone personally that you really, really admire, and you know they're like overwhelmed, like anxious, feel it's, it's similar to that. So for instance, in, in January, prior to everything shutting down, Tammy and I flew down to Las Vegas to see our favorite singer-songwriter, Dermot Kennedy. And uh, we also bought these special tickets that included a, a brief meet and greet with him prior to the show. And so for months before this show, I just kept thinking through, like, I'm finally going to meet this guy, that, like, his songs mean more to me than any songs that have ever been written in the history of humanity, which is not an overstatement. And, 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 what, and, and, what, and what am I going to say to him? Like, imagine you get to meet, like, your favorite artist ever. What do you say to that person? And I kept, I was specifically thinking, like, what do I say that he doesn't hear a hundred times in every meet and greet he already does? And so every time, for, I mean, for months, I would drop my kids at school or, or drop them somewhere, and then I'd be driving, and immediately that's where my mind, what am I going to say to Dermot? What am I going to say to Dermot? <laughs> and every time, my heart would start to beat real fast, and I'd get anxious. And so the day finally came. And we were there, and we were in line, and I was talking to Tammy about it this week. We were, we were laughing because we were such a mess in this line. We were so sweaty and so thirsty that we were both just like, oh, we're going to have sweaty pits when we meet this guy. This is already going so bad. And adding to my nerves was the fact that my sister was with us, and I was genuinely afraid she was going to propose to him and embarrass me. <laughs> or... These were legit, like I had to talk to her about this beforehand. I was afraid we might get arrested because of her inappropriate and unwanted display of affection toward him. So it was a very volatile situation, a lot like this sermon. And so we finally get to the front of this line, and there was this curtain that you had to come around. I had like my vinyl record that I wanted him to sign. I felt like a two-year-old going to preschool. Two-year-olds, unless you are very smart, do not go to preschool. I realize that. You have to be like four. So, so I come around. I'm so nervous. And then I see him, and I set down this record. And I had had months 
to think of the perfect <laughs> opening line. Okay? I've been waiting. I'm all sweaty and thirsty and dry mouth. And I get to the front and guess what I say to him? Nothing. I, I was so overwhelmed. I did not say one word. I, I got to meet and interact with my favorite artist of all time, and not a word was spoken. He didn't say anything to me. I didn't say anything to him. And Tammy was here in the first service. She was cracking up in the front row, and I want you to know, she was not the cool kid between us. Neither of us said a word to this guy. Just as we're leaving, we turned to say thank you, and to add insult to injury, he'd already moved on to the next person. So we just left carrying nothing but shame and disappointment. That's how our night ended. And so I, I, I very much understand what an imperfect description of this experience it is. But that, that sort of like overwhelmed sense of awe, is, it gets us like 1% of the way to understanding this word fear. And so here's what it really is. The goodness and the greatness of God should collide in our hearts in such a seismic manner that we are left to shake in awe that this God loves us and desires us. I wonder how often we really think about that. I think we, I think we have like some vague understanding that God loves us, but I wonder when the last time you really stopped to consider the fact that God desires you. Because the awe that that creates is what Peter's talking about here. And so make no mistake, we should honor everyone, but we only fear God. And we are to love one another sacrificially and deeply, but we only fear God. And we should honor our leaders, even in their imperfection, but we only fear God. And this is the heartbeat of everything that Peter has said. Christians honor everyone, but we only fear God. And so at the end of all this, we're left to answer this question again. What matters most to us? Our freedom or Christ's reputation? Because make no mistake, that's what's at stake in all this. Our conduct in this world will cast either an accurate light on the reputation of Jesus or an inaccurate one. And what we're seeing so much of in American Christian culture right now is that when our personal freedom is paramount, we poison the reputation of Jesus. And then so often, we are seeing that worn as a badge of honor, as if it's, it's a good thing that the, 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 the country that we live in, the culture that we live in, looks on us with scorn. That will happen at times as we follow the way of Jesus. But if it happens by our own hand, that's on us, not God. And we can't confuse that and wear our own failure as a badge of honor. Because God is not honored in that. And he's not pleased in that. And so by God's grace, this is the church that we are going to be. Ridgeline will not be known by dishonor. And we will not be known for disrespect. And we will not be known for hate or for indifference or rebellion. We are going to be known for honoring everyone, for loving one another, for fearing God, 
and honoring our leaders. That is how we surrender to Jesus, and that is who we are going to be as a church. So let's pray, and let's ask God that he would accomplish this in our midst. All right? Bow your heads with me. Father, we, uh, I just acknowledge that, that sometimes your, your word has hard things to say. They're hard for me to understand and to receive, and they are not always comfortable to teach and to highlight, and they can be hard for all of us to, to hear and to surrender to. And this is one of those words. Lord, all of us have been hurt by bad leadership. And there is so much imperfect, unjust, hurtful leadership in our world. Anywhere there is authority, it is imperfect. Some of us started, we experienced this first with our own parents. Some, all of us have also, in, in any capacity that we lead, we've all failed to lead in a way that is good and God-honoring. And so on all sides, Lord, we are, we are just a mess on this issue. And we need your help. And so over us this morning, I would just pray, Lord, would you please, please, please teach us to think through the lens of what it means to be disciples of Jesus. And then let us work out what it means to be good American uh, citizens in light of that. But do not allow us to reverse that order. Don't, us, don't, don't, don't allow us to, to view our world through the lens of being American and then try and figure out how to be Christian inside of that, Lord. That subverts the order that you have called us to. Before we are anything, we are sons and daughters of Jesus. We are followers. We are disciples. We are apprentices. And you have put us in this great country that we are blessed to live in despite its imperfections. And we have to learn how to live Christian in this culture. And so we just simply ask that you would help us to do that. Because we can't do it alone. So would you give us your grace? In Jesus' name, amen.